Great. Well, I get the uh, privilege today to introduce our speaker, uh, Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb and I have been friends uh, a long time. Uh, we met each other when we were both in Southern California, and um, I've watched uh, Caleb uh, be a great leader, leading churches in the Dallas area and Southern California, and uh, now he's currently on staff at uh, Shepherd of the Hills. Um, and, you know, everyone knows he's a um, great writer. He's written at least two books, maybe three, I can't remember, but course uh probably the best book all of them are good but the best one in my opinion is messy grace and it's just a great read um and it's uh great to have someone in our movement who can speak on subjects like this very openly very professionally uh with just the knowledge and grace that he has so uh caleb we're glad to have you on the solomon weekly call it's all yours. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I love Doug Crozier, Renee. Um, both of them are awesome. Uh, Myra, even even Ken Eidelman. I just wish he would get his integrity together. Um, other than that, I'm just kidding. I love Ken El Presidente ever since 1996. El Presidente. I was just back at Ozark, actually, Ken. Um, yeah. Taught a uh, graduate class in their new grad program, Ethics and Leadership. So had 13. So it was uh, it was a great class. So um, about how, how, much, how much time do I have here? I apologize for asking, how much time do I have here? Yeah, he's muted. muted, about 40 minutes. We try to let okay. everybody go by one. And I okay. am sure that people will have questions and discussion. Uh, and I'm talking about one Eastern. I know you're West Coast, so we like to keep it to an hour. Uh, yeah. But I would leave a good 10 or 15 minutes for discussion and questions at the end. Okay, great. And uh, if you have a question, um, you know, while I'm talking, maybe raise your digital hand. And if I can't see you, just, you know, say, hey, I have a question uh, and, I'll, and I'll know who you are. Um, so besides being one of uh, Dudley Rutherford's handlers here at Shepherd, um, I also... Uh, consult with a lot of churches and schools and um, uh, ministries on LGBTQ issues. Uh, right now, uh, consulting with several churches, but also consulting with uh, Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. I go out there once a month and they're having uh, several issues, but the good thing is they're staying the course as far as their beliefs. Uh, you know, it, it just, it makes me appreciate um, schools like Ozark and even Biola where I got my master's that guard the gate, you know, and are unapologetic about hiring people um, that are aligned, you know, where there's room for disagreement. But when it comes to marriage, to me, that's not a secondary issue. And here's part of the reason why. Um, and, and this might be the same on your at your church. It may not. But at our church at Shepherd, we have some people who are pre-millennial, and we have some people who are amillennial, but both agree that Jesus is coming back some way, somehow. We have people who lean more reformed, um, even though they're not total five-pointers because those people are crazy. Uh, we have people that lean more Arminian, but we both believe that grace is, you know, 
you know, that faith is by grace through Christ alone. We believe that. Um, and we believe that people should be baptized, obviously. Uh, so we have people with different beliefs, but when you have people on staff who believe in same-sex marriage and who believe in opposite-sex marriage, they don't arrive at the same bottom line. And that's why this is not a secondary issue. You know, when it comes to our staffing, when it comes to our messaging, when it comes to what we tell people. And this is one of the reasons why I do what I do. And I have some uh, documents that I can email uh, to Renee after I get done. I recently wrote a document um, that shares some of the recent developments uh, between religious organizations and Title IX court rulings over the last three years, stuff that you would probably need to know. I enjoy reading court cases. That That's what I enjoy. A lot of people don't because they have a life. I, on the other hand, enjoy doing that and reading about different court cases, everything from uh, court cases uh, dealing with counseling to dealing with schools to dealing with religious organizations um, and this matter. So I try to keep my pulse on uh, what's going on even in the court system um, because uh, it's it's honestly, you know, because like I think somebody has to. And so I try to keep my pulse on there so you guys don't have to. So I can send this to Renee. She can send it out to, you know, whatever. Whatever I write, you know, Solomon Foundation has full access to um, and, and can use. Um, here, here are some things I wanted to share. Uh, just from the last two years working with churches and schools, some things that I see coming, some things that are going on right now, some things I think you need to be aware of, okay? First and foremost, um, I, I want to start with good news, if that's okay. And this is just my opinion that, that, you know, when it comes to some of this stuff, that's what I can offer you, my opinion. And by the way, nobody buys into my opinions like I do, okay? So I just wanted to be clear about that. Um, first and foremost, I, I do not think that the gender identity craze is sustainable. I don't believe that the gender identity craze is sustainable. And here's why. If you look over in the UK right now, they're about five or 10 years ahead of where we are socially, I think. Um, and if you want a preview of what's coming our way, you can kind of look at the UK. And a lot of the uh, trans activist arguments and the gender identity craze is falling apart over in the UK. You have a lot of uh, gender identity clinics that are actually falling apart, that are uh, that are being shut down time and time again. You also have, and this is unfortunate, but it's the truth, their, their court system is inundated with hundreds and hundreds of court cases of young adults suing the doctors who performed the reassignment surgery mm -hmm. and suing their parents. Last year, I think it was November and December of last year, just as the year was ending, here in the United States of America, we had our very first two court cases where you have two young adults who are suing the doctors who performed the uh, gender reassignment surgery. And you look at that and you, that's going to happen here. There are going to be eventually multiple court cases and lawsuits and people are going to be upset about it. The other reason why I think that the whole uh, gender identity um, 
uh, issue is not sustainable is because of pronouns. I tell people, I get asked all the time, you know, should I call somebody by their preferred pronouns? And my answer is, number one, I try not to. Like, especially if you're, this goes against what some people think, but this is just what I've noticed. Uh, as I said, I can only offer you my opinion. Um, I, I will not use an adolescent's preferred pronouns. If I'm dealing with somebody 18 or under, I will not use their preferred pronouns if they have different preferred pronouns. And part of the reason why is that I think that um, one of the ways that we actually end up, um, uh, you know, sharing Christ and being a, um, being a light is by helping people to be grounded in reality. And you have so many students who are changing all the time. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a CIY one summer or church camp or even here at my church, and a student will say, you know, I'm gay or I'm non-binary or I'm trans or that kind of thing. And then the next summer, they're like, I'm not gay anymore. I'm not non-binary. Mm -hmm. And Dr. West Beavis may have different opinions on this than I do, and I would trust him over me with what I'm getting ready to say. But I'll just tell you that I haven't met somebody who, who has changed their orientation usually. It's something that they struggle with, and it's something that they have to keep surrendering over to God again and again and again and again. Not saying that it can't happen. I'm just saying that I haven't seen it. Not saying that it hasn't happened. I'm just saying that I haven't seen it because God is not interested in making us heterosexual. God is interested in surrender over and above everything else, you know, surrender to his will. And so I, to me, when, when a student flip-flops like that, which you see a lot of students flip-flopping like that, um, that tells you something. That tells you something that there is part of this that is a fad. There's part of this that is a phase. Now, I myself personally believe that there is such a thing as gender dysphoria. And that's where uh, somebody will experience, uh, and, and Dr. Beavis may have a, a better answer, a better definition than I do, but I'll give it my best shot, where somebody experiences incongruence or misalignment between their biological sex and how they perceive what they call their gender identity, um, how they uh, move throughout uh, society and engage with people and that kind of a thing. I do believe that's a real thing. And the reason why I believe it's a real thing is because I believe sin is a real thing. And I believe that every single person is a broken sexual person. We are all broken sexually. There's not one of us who is whole. Sin has infiltrated every aspect of our culture, every aspect of our uh, human experience even that. And so I, I do believe that that is a real thing. And I believe that that people that struggle with it, um, at least the people I know who struggle with gender dysphoria, they're not on TikTok making videos. They're not on Instagram making videos. They're not making all these like super cool videos on YouTube because it is a debilitating mental struggle that people go through when they have gender dysphoria. A good book I would recommend and again, with some of the psychology stuff, always check it against Dr. Beavis. I would go with his opinion over mine. And I mean that 100%, even though we have never had lunch, I still trust this guy. And I, and I have heard him speak and I have nothing but respect. I really appreciate the book by Dr. Mark Yarhouse, who's the head of the psychology department over at Wheaton College in Chicago. He wrote a book called Emerging Gender Identities. And it's uh, learning about you know, gender identities from today's youth. Uh, if you or if your staff works with kids or teenagers, they need to have that book on their shelf. 
by Dr. Mark Yarhouse, Y-A-R and then H-O-U-S-E. A lot of people like Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, and, and that's good. I don't agree with everything that Preston says when it comes to this. I don't agree with everything that Dr. Yarhouse says. But one of the reasons why I like Dr. Yarhouse is that because he works at Wheaton, he's able to do a lot of studies and get some clinical results. And I think that it, it's an outstanding book and it really helps you understand where a lot of students and a lot of youth are coming from. But within that, you, I think that there is a, a sense in which depending on where a student goes to school, depending on um, uh, maybe even geographical location, there is some of this that is a fact. That's another reason why I believe that this is not sustainable because I, I eventually, I don't think it's gonna go away, but eventually I think that it's gonna become less and something else will uh, take its place. Um, but here's what's interesting. Um, you know that there is uh, the LGBTQ plus, you know, acronym. That's another way of saying sexual minorities, okay? And and really that acronym is long. It's like LGBTTQQIFF2SAAADPKOCD, and then there are two more Ps. And then a couple other letters that keep on being added to this, what we call sexual minorities. And then, so uh, sexual orientation, and then you have gender identities. You have people who are trans, non-binary, where they don't feel like they're male or female. You have people who say that they're gender fluid, where they may feel like this during a season. Now they feel like this with this gender. Uh, you have people who are omnigender. They, they say that they have all the genders, kind of like Thanos has all the infinity stones. They have all the genders. So we have all these words that keep on uh, being added and coming out to the different, you know, to sexual orientation and gender identity. So here's what's interesting. And I, I think this is fascinating sociologically. So um, do you, I don't know if any of you know, so the, the actual biological sex or gender of people that are coming out more than anyone else are females right now, are either coming out as uh, gender diverse or a sexual minority. And specifically junior high, middle school females are coming out in droves as opposed to high school boys, middle school boys, adults or women. Um, middle school or junior high age girls. And here's what's interesting. On the sexuality side, they're either coming out as bisexual or queer, which queer is kind of uh, uh, ambiguous in a sense. It's meant many different things over the years. Now I think it has to do more with politics than anything else. So you have girls coming out as either bisexual or queer and then on the gender side, they're either coming out as non-binary or gender fluid. Now, I think that's fascinating. Here's why I think that's fascinating. Because there's no line in the sand when it comes to bisexuality, when it comes to queer. All of these are ambiguous. There's a line in the sand when you say I'm gay. There's a line in the sand when you say I'm a lesbian. There's a line in the sand when you say I'm transgender. You know, I, I, I'm born th with this biological sex, but I identify with this gender identity. But with bisexual, 
and queer and non-binary and gender fluid, it's just kind of non-committal. It's kind of whatever. It's flowing in the wind. And I'm not saying that there aren't bisexual people. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when you look at the trends and you see junior high girls right now who are, who are coming out mostly as either bisexual, queer, or non-binary or gender fluid, you see that there's really not a lot of, of committal. I remember um, last year I was meeting with a bunch of high school students and asking them questions, trying to get a better understanding of some of their thoughts on sexuality and gender. And there's this one girl who said that she was bisexual, and, but she kept on talking about women, 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 girls, girls, this girl's cute, this girl's cute. And there are about, you know, 20 of us and sitting in a circle. And I asked her, I said, hey, I want to ask you a question. And if you feel like it's inappropriate, please don't answer it. And please accept my apologies. But you say that you're bisexual and you keep on talking about girls. Why would you not just say you're a lesbian? And her response kind of astounded me. Her, here's what she said. She said, well, if I end up, you know, telling people I'm a lesbian, you know, I can't do that. And I said, why not? She said, well, if I do that, then I'm too exclusive. You know, my sexual orientation needs to be inclusive to anyone. And I said, that, that's fascinating because usually sexual orientation by nature is exclusive. It's supposed to be exclusive, you know, to an extent. And yet you're, you're telling me that you think it should be open to anyone. He's, she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to harm anyone. And so that's kind of some of that was, I'm still thinking about that. But to me, that was fascinating that somebody would actually, a young person would actually think of their sexual orientation as something they would try to control and mold because they don't want to offend other people. To me, I look at all of this and it's not sustainable. Here's another reason why I think the whole uh, gender identity and trans activism is not sustainable. Um, it, it's because of the gender, what I call the gender identity complex or the gender, let's call it this, the gender industrial complex. And what I mean by that is that this is a multi-billion dollar industry per year right now. Um, the reason why this is being pushed so hard, the reason why Pride Month is being pushed so hard is, I think, because of money and power. It, it's, it's capitalism at its finest. Now, hear me out here. I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a communist. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not any of those things. Um, I, I think we should have a president that knows that he's president. I, I honestly, I'm not any of those things. Uh, and I think that capitalism probably is probably the best that we have right now. You know, I mean, it, it, for all the people that criticize capitalism, it sure seems to work for them to make money off of criticizing capitalism. So there you go. But I will say this, that it's all about money, like the whole target thing. That one got me really upset because of the kids selling gender tucking swimsuits for children and chest compressing bras for children. I don't agree with that. But when it comes down to it, Target and Bud Light and Disney and Xbox and uh, Activision and all these different companies, they do, and the Dodgers, they don't care about LGBTQ people and they don't care about Jewish people. And they don't care about Democrats. They don't care about. They want money. 
And if they could get money by being anti-LGBTQ, they would do it like that. And so you have them making money. You have the pharmaceutical companies making money off of hormones. Do you know how much money they make off hormones? Do you know how much money a hospital makes when there's a, a gender reassignment surgery? And usually when you have the gender reassignment surgery, it's not one, it's two, three, or four. They make between $500,000 to $700,000 per surgery. Hospitals do. Think about the surgeons, how much money they make, the special interest groups. I'm telling you, this is a multi-billion dollar industry that has turned into a system that is now pushing itself with nobody at the helm. And that's one of the reasons why all this is being pushed. Another reason why I don't think that the whole trans uh, activist movement is going to last, uh, it, or at least have the same kind of power that it does, that it has had over the last year or so. Um, is because it's selfish. It's very selfish. So uh, many of you know, but I was raised by, you know, three LGBTQ parents. And when I was being raised by three LGBTQ parents, um, uh, I, they took me to a lot of marches. They took me to a lot of pride parades. Um, pride parades were very different in the 80s than they were today. I know Doug doesn't remember the 80s. He's so old, he doesn't even remember the 80s, but I remember the 80s. And uh, the movies were great. Um, you know, the music was even better than the movies. But at the same time, at the same time, those pride parades were interesting. And I'll tell you why. Because my mom and her partner were on the board of directors for GLAAD. And one of the things that I always noticed when it came to the pride parades is that, that number one, they were just talking about rights for gay men and lesbians. Okay. It wasn't the whole alphabet, gay men and lesbians, but it was almost always partnered together with, um, it was almost always partnered together with uh, equality for women, equal pay, equal treatment, equal opportunities for women. And so you have this partnership between women's rights and then rights for gay men and lesbians. Again, I'm not making a political uh, statement here. I'm just making an observation. When you look at the trans activism today, they do not care really about anything other than self. It is not partnered with anything else to try to make society better, like the activism of the 80s and 90s, in, in their view. Okay, A great book to read, if you haven't read it, is by Dr. Uh, Carl Truman, C-A-R-L-T-R-U-E-M-A-N. Um, like the president, except there's an E, you know, for true in there, last name. Um, Strange New World by Dr. Truman, by Dr. Carl Truman. Um, that is an abridged version of a book that came out, I think it was in 2021 or 2020, one of the two, called um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is about a 500-page book. He's a... Uh, a reformed Scottish theologian who used to teach at Princeton and Westminster. Um, you know, he now teaches at Grove City College in the Philadelphia area, which is a Christian college. And he's got a, a good uh, uh, orthodox uh, conservative theological view. But um, he wrote Strange New World as an abridged version for those of us who don't want to read a book with a thesaurus next to us. Um, you know, and it's about 200 pages. And basically, it, it talks about the modern day sexual revolution. It talks about how we got to where we're at. 
So he traces back all the way through Rousseau and Thoreau. He talks about, you know, how that went through Nietzsche and Freud to where we are here. And who knows, Dr. Beavis may have some different opinions on Freud. You know, not the biggest fan of him, but who knows, maybe, maybe Beavis is. But uh, my wife, who's an MFT, is not the biggest fan either. But anyway, so um, he says that basically, he, he says that basically what is happening right now is what he calls expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, which, which is the whole idea that everybody needs to acclimate to me so that I'm happy. That's what expressive individualism, that you need to acclimate your life and center it in such a way so that it affirms me so that I'm able to do what I'm, you know, need to do. And, and he, he even points this out within the modern day, uh, you know, public school system, where he says that when public school was, you know, first started in America, you know, and not that it was ever, you know, perfect. It, it wasn't by any means. And some big changes obviously have needed to be made. But when it came to identity, the subject of identity, a lot of public schools would, you know, try to help the student develop character and so on, but also to get the student ready to take their place in society. But today, it seems like they're the, the whole, you know, educational philosophy around the student's identity is affirm the student no matter what. That's why here in America, or sorry, in California, well, that was a slip, here in California, and I think in Oregon too, and probably Washington, that basically our, our states have decided, and it's law now, that a student going to a school, a public school especially, can go to that public school and can get psychological, you know, evaluations, can be prescribed medicine from psychiatrists, uh, and can even get gender-affirming care without their parents ever knowing about it whatsoever, which is ridiculous for multiple reasons. And one reason, I mean, imagine your kid is having an emergency, you go to the hospital, the doctor asks you, hey, what medicine is your kid on? Well, I, I don't think my kid is on any medicine. They do something that interferes with that medicine. Now you've got a huge medical emergency. It, it's just, that's just one of many reasons why it's, it's ridiculous. And so this whole idea of expressive individualism is just um, bonkers. And it, it's true. I see it. And here's the other thing. Expressive individualism, it eventually cancels itself out. It's a logical fallacy. Because if, if you're supposed to acclimate to me so that I'm happy, well, then I have to acclimate to you so that you're happy. And it's like, then I'm not going to be happy because I keep on acclimating. You're acclimating. Everybody's acclimating. Um, one of my favorite authors, a uh, guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, he wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think that's the name of it. Um, but he has this great quote. I think it's him who said it. It's either him or Arthur Brooks, one of the two. But basically, uh, to paraphrase uh, the quote, he, he says that a lot of people believe that society would improve if we disagree less. And he says, I think society would improve if we learn how to disagree better. And I 100% agree with that. So I'm going to get some questions in a, in a moment. But what can pastors do? What, what can church leaders do 
when it comes to this. I know that's a lot of information to throw at you at one time. Let me let me try to put some practical wheels on this, okay? Uh, number one, um, you know, start uh, if you if you have margin in your schedule, um, or if you can create margin in your schedule, read some of the books uh, that I you know recommended to you or other books too. And I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I just mean read some of those books. Talk to Dr. Beavis. He probably has some additional, um, you know, books that that he's reading. I'm reading this one by Dr. Mark Yarhouse right now called Gender Identity and Faith. It's Clinical Postures, Tools, and Case Studies for Christ-Centered Care. It's written for counselors, but I still think that it it would be helpful uh, to you. Um, so read read that book. Um, I, if you've already read this book, I would reread it again, Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. I would read that book. Um, in, in like my latest book, Messy Truth, I spent about three or four chapters dealing with how to have difficult conversations without shaming people. And, um, you, you know, where you allow the Holy Spirit to bring guilt, but you don't want to bring shame. Those are two different things. I, I think we need to learn how to get better at having conversations, especially impromptu conversations. Um, there's a great book by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend called Have That Hard Conversation or Have That Difficult Conversation, where they talk about different types of conversations. Um, but I think that we need to learn how to have better conversations around this because um, that's where a, a lot of this centers around is our conversations. So I, I think that's one thing. Uh, number two, I would make sure that your your staff is uh, always having these conversations. You're having these conversations with your staff um, because there are going to be different opinions on your staff about this. But when it comes to, you know, and, and hopefully, and I, when I say different opinions, I don't necessarily mean that people are going to disagree. They might disagree at some finer points, which is evident and fine. But I think that you got to understand that where the real battle lies um, and part of the reason why you want to have these conversations, the real battle lies with um, your your staff who oversee like the uh, next generation, emerging generation, kids and teens. You need to make sure that you're on the same page with them, okay? Because if you're not on the, I've seen this happen time and time again, where you know student pastors, and I'm not talking about about student pastors. I actually volunteer in my church every Wednesday night as a high school small group leader. I have nine high schoolers. I, I love those guys. They're absolute morons, but I love them to death. And I love studying the Bible with them. And I do that because I do believe in the next generation, which is why Ken Adelman spent multiple years at Ozark, because he believes in the next generation as well. And I 100% I believe in the next generation, but you as, a, as the leader of your staff in some capacity have got to make sure that you are on the same page. Because I've seen it where some student ministry pastors or kids pastors will go rogue you know, with their beliefs about this. And there, and as you know, there is nothing worse than uh, uh, a lack of continuity and misalignment between staff. Uh, a third thing I think you need to do is you need to train volunteers of how to handle these conversations, especially volunteers with kids and students, your family ministry volunteers. Um, Numerous times I've gone to churches and I've had to conduct volunteer trainings or help churches create volunteer trainings 
because you'll have kids ministry volunteers who will have a kid in their first grade Sunday school class or their first grade small group or whatever it is you do on Sunday morning. They find out this kid has same-sex parents. And then this, albeit well-intentioned, well-meaning volunteer will now try to convert the parent's sexuality when the parents show up to bring the kids. And, and we need to let them know that is not the goal you have you know, in, in this moment, especially, you know, converting sexuality, we're not creepers, you know, we try not to be creepy, but in this moment, your, your main job is to influence that kid, is to be there for that kid. And, and so those are some things I would do. Um, I, I know we're getting some of the questions in the chat. Um, so I, uh, let me look at some of these. Um, Okay, Caleb, in relationship to the UK, can you give any commentary on what's going on presently in Sweden? Um, I'm still thinking through that myself, Steve. Um, but if you want to ask me that question in a couple of weeks, I'll let you know. I wouldn't be careful to speak until I really think through it. Um, but I just also think this is an ever-going conversation, and it's never-ending, and the speed at which the whole gender industrial complex, the whole gender movement is moving, it's not sustainable. Um, I don't know if you guys have read this book and I keep on throwing books out there, so I apologize, um, but it's called The Madness of the Crowds by Douglas Murray. Madness of the Crowds. Uh, he's a UK journalist and scholar uh, by Douglas Murray, Madness of the Crowds. And so here's what's interesting. D uh, Douglas Murray politically is uh, uh, moderate or conservative, but he's also in a same-sex relationship. He's gay. And so, but at the same time, he is not on board with the whole uh, LGBTQ activist agenda. And here's, here's what's interesting with that. Here's what's interesting with that, is that he paints this picture of everybody who is LGBTQ plus being on a train and wanting equal rights, wanting the same rights, that kind of a thing. And he says, it's kind of like you're, you're, you're on a train and you're, you know, arriving at a station. You've gotten everything that you want, but everybody on the train keeps on saying, push forward, push, keep going, keep going. And the conductor's like, I can't because there's a wall right here. And everybody on the train is like, no, we got to have more. Keep going, keep going. And eventually they get up to the front of the, of, you know, the train and they crowd the conductor and the train lurches forward and hits the wall and blows up. And that's what we're eventually gonna see um, is, is that this whole movement when it comes to the trans ideology blowing up. Now, with that, I do wanna say this. Well, I do think that the whole trans activism is gonna go away. I also believe that eventually there's gonna be more discord between um, the Christian community and gay men and lesbians. I think that the sexual identity piece is not going away. It's always going to be there. It's going to be a big deal. And I think that that is going to be become more and more of an issue in the future, um, especially when it comes to religious organizations. And ironically, I don't think that refusing to do weddings will be what takes a church to court. I think it could be church membership and how you handle church membership, because church membership is directly connected to your 501c3. 
501c3s have to have a board and they have to have membership. And I think that um, whatever it is that connects your church or your ministry or your organization to the government and whatever it is that gives you a financial benefit from the government um, will eventually be used uh, against us in court. So I just think that um, I think that uh, that's just something that that we need to keep in mind. We can talk about that later if you want on another call or whatever. Um, let's see here. Okay, what counsel do you have for pastors, do's and don'ts for preaching with uh, those with gender confusion? I, I do have some preaching do's and don'ts um, that I can share real quick, and I can email this uh, to Renee as well. Um, here it is. Um, here's some here's some advice when it comes to preaching. I would say, uh, familiarize yourself with the modern context of sexuality uh, and and gender um, language usage, uh, sociological examples. I mean that kind of a thing. Um, when you preach on gender or sexuality, I think some of the best things to do is to uh, is to number one, don't just make it about gender or sexuality. I mean, you can if you do it well. I know Southeast has done it, um, and a lot of churches have hopped on board with, uh, um, you know, the the discipleship of sexuality, which I think Kyle did a great job with. Um, but I also think that depending on your setting and where you are and the communicator, um, that might be difficult. Mm -hmm. And so it, unless you have an extremely fine-tuned sermon series like that, I think what you can do is partner is preach a larger sermon series on identity. I think that's one thing you can do. Preach a sermon series on family. You can bring this up. You can always bring in a guest speaker. Um, you can always um, end up using this as a standalone sermon that's not part of a series. But I would recommend this. So when you preach on this, uh, or or you know when when your pastor preaches on this, whoever, partner it with another series. Do not uh, forget to take advantage of that. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to do a series on sexuality or you're going to be talking about some of this stuff, have a parent Q and A time. You know, have an event in the evening where you allow parents to come and ask questions. And when you allow them to ask questions. You've got to be a little German about it and be overly controlling. And what I mean by that is don't give anybody the microphone. When it comes to a lightning rod issue, have them submit their questions ahead of time or via Google form anonymous or Google phone anonymously or something like that. But you you will gain so much momentum if you preach on this and you actually partner it with an event. Um, whether it's to the community or to family or, or so that kind of thing. Um, when you're preaching on this, acknowledge the audience. Acknowledge, you know, from the outset that there are people in here that have different beliefs about sexuality and gender, and there are people here who might even relate or identify differently. You know, even though you're going to say things that some people are going to disagree with because you're preaching biblical truth, it still buys you influence and respect from people when you acknowledge where they are. In the very beginning, I, I would I would do that. Um, I would definitely um, reveal truth 
uh, sorry, I would definitely, um, what is it, share stories. Um, Jesus obviously did that all the time. People um, do that with stories. And here's the other thing I would do. You need to, you need to distinguish between the tension of grace and truth and the confusion of grace and truth. Um, I was texting Doug the other day. I actually just got done texting or sorry, consulting with a church um, that will go unnamed, but this church is well known and the pastor had made some comments or lack thereof comments surrounding LGBTQ that um, troubled a lot of people and stirred up some controversy. So I flew down and helped them think through this and you know what are some wise decisions that we can make when it comes to this. Um, and one of the things I noticed about this pastor's heart and some of the other staff members' hearts is that according to them, they were orthodox in their belief and in their statements. Uh, I mean, in their belief and in their practice. They, they believed in the New Testament sexual ethic. But what I noticed is it, it's, their, it's their love for people and unbelievers that created this confusion. Now, number one, we all need to have love for unbelievers, 100%, okay? But when you, some of you have seen me do this with a rubber band where I stretch it and I'm like, you know, tension between grace and truth, there's power in the tension, okay? Notice that when you stretch the rubber band, okay, that you have a firm grip on each side of the rubber band, okay? In other words, truth has clarity, grace has clarity, but where does the tension lie? It lies in our human experience because we are sinful, broken, fallen people experiencing the progression of days in the arena of time, you know, and, and that clouds our clarity, that clouds our thinking. But for tension to of grace and truth to exist, you have to have a firm grip on the grace side and on the truth side. Um, so th those are just some things I would say when it comes to preaching. You've got to have clarity over what you believe, but you have to acknowledge that the ambiguity of the human experience um, because that, that's extremely important, okay? Um, see, it's 9.53. Uh, any other questions? Caleb, I, yeah, Dr. West here, I just want to jump in here. Uh, you, um, you are a gift to the Christian community. Um, you've deferred to the fact that I, I'm a clinical psychologist, but one of the things we're trained in is to know your field of competency and also to stay within your field of practice. And as far as I'm concerned, you are so way ahead of, of me and probably most on this in terms of being a subject matter expert. I would defer to you all day long. In fact, I have uh, I've got a, a page full of notes here uh, that you've really given me some things to think about. Um, what, what I've noticed, uh, when you said that something else will take its place as um, and I totally agree. In, in, in my uh, work, I've noticed, you know, when it comes to young people, uh, we had, there was a season where bulimia was really big. It was binging and purging and 
uh, we ended up having a whole lot of young people, especially girls, uh, with eating disorders. Then it moved into cutting, uh, where ex- you know, uh, actually cutting their flesh uh, to externalize an internal pain, and and that was really popular. And now it's moved on to uh, the transgender issue. I've I have no idea what's next, but I know it's all going to tie back to uh, insecurity. Yes. Uh, and if there's one thing, you know, we talk about gender dysphoria. Well, you know, when it comes to kids and teenagers, dysphoria is is their world. It's it's not, you know, it's it's living in this angsty place of I don't know who I am. Um, it's this social insecurity. And I, I just think that all these things uh, tap into that insecurity as, and you know, that that's uh, what is a social contagion mm-hmm. uh, kids jump onto it and they, you know, I, I I've even so gone so far to say if I was a high schooler today and I was massively on the outside and uh, of, of the social circles and was not fitting in, and was not a Jesus follower and didn't have that, I'd be coming out as something because, you know, I'd be coming out as anything except heteronormative because it's very uncool to be heteronormative, but very cool to be, to come out as something. So I, I, Caleb, I just wanted to say you, you, you are the subject matter expert uh, on this and I've just been learning so much from you. And uh, I just, I want you to, feel encouraged. I think what you you do uh, a much deeper study on this uh, than than all of us as pastors and even me as a clinical psychologist. It's not my area of expertise. And so for us to look to you is and and to gain the benefit of your study and your expertise is really, really valuable. And I I, I really want you to know that. Um, well, thank you, Dr. West. I appreciate that. And I also agree with you. I think it does go back to insecurity. I would even go so far as to say, that goes back to Genesis 3, that what did, what did Satan use to get Adam and Eve to question their identity? It was insecurity. First, he says, hey, um, you know, did God really say, you know, don't eat from that? Make them insecure about God's words, and then says, hey, if you eat from this, you'll be just like God. And then he makes them insecure about who they are. And I think that's part of the devil's strategy in how he deals with all of us. But especially, as you said, when you look at youth culture right now, it's insecurity, insecurity, insecurity about what God says, insecurity about logic, insecurity about truth, and, hey, insecurity about who you are. And I think that's one of the reasons why our society values uh, reactions and, uh, and, and, you know, overwhelming excessive emotions instead of logic and truth. And I think it was Augustine who said, I'm going to paraphrase, that the mind and the will must never be pitted against each other, that God created them to flow together. So I agree with you 100%, Dr. West. I I could not agree more. Caleb, I appreciate uh, your comments. Um, Was it Solomon that said there's nothing new under the sun? it's just going to be something else later on, but you've really tapped into uh, a critical issue, spoke into it so that we can understand it and given us useful information about how to um, educate ourselves, 
to help people. Thank you for the practical illustration of the rubber band. Those things are so essential for people to grab hold of deep, complex subjects with something very usable and understandable. Thanks. Absolutely. Caleb, at, at the risk of, of taking other people's time here, as, as followers of Jesus, we, we can never be LGBTQ gender uh, affirming, transgender affirming. And so we become, as, as churches, uh, labeled as intolerant. And that's a that's a really tough label for us to have because you know as as uh, followers of Jesus and and having love for people and and wanting them to know the the freedom in the gospel the last the la the last thing we want to be labeled at is intolerant. Um, could you speak to that for how how do we not be for something and yet not be labeled intolerant or how do we navigate that? Yeah. Man, thank you so much, Dr. West. I would say a few things. Number one, you know, I'm a big believer in that I can't control what other people say. I can only control what I do. I can't control how somebody else reacts or responds. I can only control my reactions and my emotions. And that's what God holds me accountable for. So we have to realize that God holds us accountable for our decisions and, and how we handle and navigate difficult issues. God doesn't hold us accountable for how other people interpret it unless we are careless, you know, in, in how we communicate. Um, so I don't think there's any getting around being labeled intolerant, unfortunately. I think even Jesus to an extent was, may not have been labeled intolerant, but he was definitely labeled as a wacko by the Pharisees and other people. And he just kept doing what he, you know, felt I mean, but what his call was from God to do, he just kept moving forward and treated people well. Um, with that, there are some other things I think you can do um, within your your church. Number one, um, when it comes to policies that are made, one thing that I try to advise churches and ministries is to not is a, if you're making a policy like, for instance, can somebody serve somewhere? Like, can somebody serve, um, you know, if they're in a same-sex relationship and they're visiting? Because you all know that volunteerism is one of the best ways to, to engage unchurched people, right, and unbelievers. Because we live in a society that's so justice-centered that people look for places to volunteer. As a matter of fact, Judd Wilhite said that one of their biggest times of church growth happened right after the MGM shooting back in 2018, if you remember that in the fall. Um, because they had, because they were the largest church in Vegas, they were doing so much. They were sending out their small groups in the community to do things, and they actually had unbelievers regularly calling their church, wanting to join a small group, because they wanted to respond to the horror that had happened. They wanted to feel like they were doing something. And then you had these unbelievers going out to serve people in the community, and even going to other states to serve people. These unbelievers were not Christians, but they were now spending time with Christians. They were doing the work of Jesus without even knowing they were doing the work of Jesus. They were making friends. And Judd said that their church attendance, like after six months, went like this. And you had all these people who would come to the Lord and, you know, through Central, but had never stepped foot 
within Central's building yet because of the ask the, of the opportunity they had to serve. So I'm not saying that unbelievers should serve anywhere in the church. They can't. But when you're making a policy, um, one of the things that the government um, and courts really are are pay attention to is do your are your policies um, equitable? Meaning, do they apply equally to everybody across the board? So if you make a policy, you know about serving, and you say, hey. Um, you know, you know, to serve here or to serve in these areas, you have to believe that marriage is made by God between a man and a woman, or sorry, marriage is created by God to be between a man and a woman. You have to believe that to serve here or to serve in these locations. Here's the problem with that. You're focusing on marriage. Not that marriage, it's wrong to focus on that, but when it comes to a policy, you're focusing on marriage and that's that's not the right place to focus because it doesn't apply equally to everybody in the organization. Not everybody is married. Some people are divorced. Some people are widowed. Some people are single and have never been married. Some people are, you know, in different kinds of marriages now or different kinds of relationships. Some people are living together. And so you have to find the commonality. That's one of the reasons why I tell people, you know, to do something like this, to say, we believe that God designed sex to be expressed in a marriage between a male and a female. We believe God designed sexual intimacy and sexual affection to be expressed in a marriage between a male and a female. That's applicable to everybody in the organization. And that way you don't have to call out like list bisexuality and asexuality and lesbian and trans and all that kind of stuff. Um, because the, because sex is equally applied to everybody in the organization. It, it doesn't matter what kind of a relationship you're in, you know, do you believe this? And does this statement describe your values? Is it what you are living out? You know, we believe that God designed sex to be expressed in a marriage between a male and a female. That if you want to serve in these areas right here, that you you need to do that. Because when you make it about sex, all of a sudden it, you know, it, it, it applies to everyone, the person that's having the emotional affair, the person that is hooking up during the week, so on and so forth. And you don't have to single out a certain subgroup or anything. I think that's one way, um, probably a little complex, but that's one way that we can appear to be, um, you know, less less. you know, that th- doesn't look like we're picking on any one single group mm. in, in that sense. Um, Caleb, that... so I think things like that, but at the same time, it's like, no matter what, we're going to be seen as intolerant, but that doesn't mean that we can't keep being compassionate and loving within the boundaries of truth. So good. Appreciate that, Caleb. 